Hello, you're listening to the Ambition Podcast. I'm Alan Buchan, Insights and Communications Executive at AMBA and BGA. In this episode of the podcast, I'll be speaking to John Saunders, who's the author of The Optimizer, Building and Leading a Team of Serial Innovators. We spoke about how leaders can get the very best from their teams, including how to create a relationship which centres around trust, how to allow employees to take ownership of their innovations, and how to guide projects from success. I particularly loved all of John's fantastic examples of how he had implemented these theories himself. I can't wait for you to hear this conversation, and here it is. Thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Could you introduce yourself and give me a little background to your career, please? Sure. Uh, my name is John Saunders. I live in the Washington, D.C. area of the U.S. Uh, I started out right out of uh, my undergraduate college degree. I started out, uh, I moved right to New York City and began a career on Wall Street as a sales assistant, supporting a, a pretty large team of sales folks and, and just doing whatever it is, whatever it was they needed. And as I went about my career, you know, there's a, a question that always echoed through, continues to this day that echoes through my mind that I learned in uh, one of my economics classes. And we always looked at the economic history of the world, particularly the U.S., and we said, were these decisions that were made efficient and were they effective? And I can't tell you, Alan, how often that question rings through my head. And the, the reality is you can't just pick one, right? If you just want to be completely efficient, maybe you just send emails out to your clients all the time. And if you want to be completely effective, maybe you only have one eight-hour meeting with clients every day. And of course, those extremes never work. You have to find something in the middle as a simple example for marketing. I've just taken that mindset and then looked. I always have found that if I allocate time to asking those questions about what we do, how what service we provide, what products we have, how we execute, I find there's constantly ways to, to make things better. And that strategy, that sort of mindset has really helped me grow in my career. And fast forward 23 years, I was running a team through several promotions uh, with a $4 billion sales goal, um, trying to raise, uh, you know, we were a sales team on Wall Street. And we that was our goal. We had to raise every year was $4 billion and try to create change and develop relationships. It was really, it was a lot of fun, but it took a lot of work to get there. And uh, honestly, these basic practical applications, I just found I'll say more efficient and effective ways to apply them as time went on. And fast forward through that, a couple of years ago, my company was sold. Uh, I had a really interesting opportunity to leave. And so I did. And I began a coaching practice where I've just taken the, really the coaching mindset that I developed and, and consulting mindset that I developed as a, as a leader and a consultative sales coach, and now bring that to folks in a number of different industries. So that's where I am today. And then, of course, I wrote a book about it. And that's what we're here to talk about today. So congratulations on that. Um, Thank you so much. I haven't read it yet. Could you tell me a little bit about the key themes? The book is really, it's broken into three parts. And so first, just to really set the stage for people, I took a long look back at innovation to really try to say, you know, why do we have these particular mindsets about innovation that we have today? And it seems to be quite binary. One is wonder. You know, Jeff Bezos just uh, flew into space this uh, yesterday, right? And last uh, a week or so ago, it was Richard Branson from uh, Virgin Atlantic. And as as outsiders, we look at that and think, oh, there's 
you know, we sort of sit and wonder. And what many times is missed is that it took these guys 10, 15, sometimes 20 years to get to where they are through a series of iterations. So I, I really try to look back at innovation and try to look at how we got this mindset. Two, I go through the principles of the mindset as I see them, which are vulnerable, being a problem solver, being customer centric, and having a focus on excellence. And in the last part of the book, then I talk about, all right, as a leader, how do you enable, empower, and sustain this mindset throughout the course of a business plan? And so really it's a roadmap to develop, to identify this mindset, help people overcome the challenges of change, which I find there are many, uh, particularly emotional ones. And then how do you sort of, how do you build the system and keep it going? Why did you choose now to write the book? Um, was it the pandemic that prompted it or... Um, yeah, tell me more about that. You know, it's kind of a, a interesting story, I, I think, at least from my vantage point. Uh, <laughs> as I was trying to figure out, as I left my company, I was trying to uh, figure out what to do next. A friend said, hey, why don't you write a paper and put it out on LinkedIn and, you know, sort of share your leadership philosophy leadership philosophy with people. And I thought, well, there's a that's a good idea. So I wrote this paper and I thought, you know, before I put it out there, I'm going to show it to a friend and see what he thinks. And he said, why don't you make it into a series? And I thought, great idea. So I made it into a four-part series and shared it with another friend who said, hey, I help executives get published for a living. Why don't we work on this together? So I thought, great. So I worked with him for several weeks. And then uh, just before Christmas, December 19, I met with one of my professors in hopes that he might be able to introduce me to some people to get it published. And I said, what do you think of my paper, the series? And he said, I think you've got the makings of a book here. (laughs) And I said, uh, I'm just trying to write a paper. I don't even know how to write a book. I've thought about it many times, but I'm not even sure where to begin. And he introduced me to an author coach, a gentleman by the name of Eric Custer and the Creator Institute. And I met with Eric and was just overwhelmed by his enthusiasm and the process. And he set up and really dove right in. Um, And so it wasn't necessarily, uh, I actually started the process before the pandemic began, but it was kind of a gift to have during the pandemic because we're all stuck at home anyway. Uh, so it gave me something really brilliant to work on during that time. And just been a, a really a, a labor of love in, in getting this story out there and putting my thoughts together and really helping people see, you know, how do you unleash talent on your team? Because that's really ultimately what this is about. So I'd love to talk about some of the things in the book and very appropriate to 2020 and unfortunately 2021 is that you talk about change quite a lot. So I was wondering how organizations can manage the emotional hurdles of change when they're dealing with their employees. One of the things I'll say first step is you have to recognize that these emotional hurdles are there. And it sounds obvious, but so often we're so wrapped up in our, uh, you know, everyone looks at their calendars and they see they're scheduled from, you know, eight in the morning till six at night and things like this. And uh, it's very easy to forget about the fact that, oh, these people, they're on my team, they work for me. And maybe the emotional journey just gets overlooked. I've seen that happen many, many times in my life. And so first of all, it's just recognizing that that's out there uh, and then helping people overcome that burden, which is encouraging them, enabling them, empowering them to take on change. People don't wake up every day, Ellen, and say, I'm going to try to do something new today. You know, that person is out there, but they are the exception, not the rule. So most folks I have found over the last 25 years only think about change when it's forced upon them, (laughs) right? Oh my gosh, we're, we've, you know, we have to sell a new product. We have to design a new system, whatever it might be. Most people don't think about how do I get better all the time? And I think they want to, but they're afraid if they sort of put themselves out there that 
there are going to be ramifications. So there, there's fear, there's loss, there's uncertainty, there's shame that all come along with this emotional burden. And so I would tell you the first step is as a leader, just recognizing that that's out there and address it, make it part of your messaging. Let people know that failure is okay. This is how we grow. And I think that simple act is just incredibly important. And the last piece of this puzzle, particularly as it relates to the optimizer mindset, is get them thinking in an incremental mindset. Because if people can take small steps, and those aren't as scary and as fearful, and those small steps can add up to enormous change over time. So that's that's the short version of the story. <laughs> what strikes me about that is that you'd have to have a lot of trust in your employer to kind of go through those steps. And I was wondering how you think that leaders can build the sense of trust with their team. And when looking at the pandemic as well, like how can they do this when people are working from home or even working um, in a hybrid approach of sometimes being in the office and sometimes not? Sure. Uh, this the Building trust is the key to this entire story. And it has to be part of your business plan. It has to be something that you allocate time to as a leader, week to week, month to month. You can't just hope that trust occurs because you give someone a paycheck. And so the key to this idea is really developing a good personal relation with relationship with someone, get to know them, what makes them, what motivates them, what gets them up in the morning and excited to go out and do what they do, uh, giving credit to them. So as you, as you enable them to take on new ideas, make sure that you give them credit for them. Uh, be as transparent as you can as a leader. Nobody likes to live in the dark on terms of what's coming next or what's going on. And the most importantly, Ellen, is make, make feedback and advice a two-way street. If you want to see someone develop a, a high level of trust in you, don't just go to them and say, hey, Ellen, you're, you're not very good at this, so let's work on this for a while, which sometimes... You have to have a message like that. Of course, that's a terrible framing of it. But when people do need to work on things, it's very important to spend time helping them self-identify what those things are, not just coming to them with, hey, this is these are your shortcomings, so let's work on it. Help them self-identify by being an advisor to them as opposed to their boss or their manager. But the, this two-way feedback uh, and advice roadmap is just so powerful. And I'm happy to share an example if uh, if you'd like. I'd love that. Particularly, uh, thank you. Particularly as it relates to the remote scenario. So when I was a new manager on Wall Street seven, eight years ago, uh, I was working in this very environment. We had a, I had a remote team. They were spread out all over the East Coast of the US. And uh, we had conference calls. We had a very aggressive conference call schedule. By aggressive, I mean, we had many of them. And I just really adopted the schedule of my predecessor because as a new manager, I didn't really know what else to do. And so I just took that schedule, which was all these calls. And I reached out to one of my team members who I got to know quite well over the years. And suddenly now I'm his boss. And I went to him and I said, hey, I don't see the engagement or a lot of value that we're getting from these conference calls. You know, and here's, here's my big question, Alan. And it's so simple and it's so underutilized. I said, hey, his name was Brian. I said, Brian, if you were me as the leader of this team, how would you create greater value in these conference calls that we do all the time? And there was a bit of a pause and he said, have a lot less of them, <laughs> have fewer calls. And I thought, well, there's an interesting answer. And at first, right, when you have these feedback discussions, you have to be ready for questions, the answers you don't want to hear, but this is how you grow and it gets easier over time. Uh, so at first I thought, 
my first reaction was, oh, gosh, he doesn't want to hear me talk every two weeks for an hour. Uh, who doesn't want to hear that? <laughs> and uh, after I thought about it for a bit, I realized, wow, he's right. And so I looked at the calendar and I just took out the calls. So if there was a holiday on a Monday, so a big holiday in the U.S. is Memorial Day. And so I would just push that call to Tuesday. And we have several of those throughout the year. And all I did, Ellen, was cancel those calls. And so it knocked out about 15% of the, the calls for the year. Wow. And fast forward, I sent out a note to the team and said, hey, everybody, uh, Brian thinks maybe we'd do better with fewer calls. So I'm going to execute a pilot this year. And I use that word very intentionally. Pilot is a great word for leading change. Pilot feels impermanent and it offers people, I think, a doorway to be part of the conversation. Hey, we're trying something new. We're all involved in this together. Let's try this pilot. And I find just messaging and words can be so important in these leading change circumstances. So I asked Brian for his advice. I executed on it and I gave him full public credit for the story, for, for the idea. And fast forward to the end of the year, we had our last call of that year, right around December, uh, gosh, 2013 or 14 or something. And I asked everyone, I said, hey, this is the last call of the year on this new schedule we've been piloting. Should we bring back the old schedule? And Ellen, nobody said a word. <laughs> and believe it or not, we had one of our best years ever. Engagement grew immensely on the calls. People were really leaning into the conversations because there were fewer of them. And the fact that I took this advice, I asked someone for advice, I took it and I gave them full credit. That simple act opened the door immensely to everyone else coming forward with new ideas. Cause I was constantly asking people for, you know, how can we make things more efficient and effective? And they always thought, you know, I had some ulterior motive. What's this guy really after? And what I was after was how do we operate more efficiently and effectively? But that simple act with the, the conference calls, it proved to everybody that I was actually listening to what they were saying. And that, that really opened the door to many more people coming forward with better ideas. And that was a big change for us in a good way. So I feel like you've, already started answering my next question but apart from listening and making sure that employees voices are being heard how else can leaders enable their team to unleash their creativity and hopefully drive innovation in the team and in the organization as a whole having this 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 feedback this transparency idea is it's just so powerful and I'll give you an example of transparency. Uh, one, of my, uh, one of my favorite interviews in the book was with David Gardner from The Motley Fool. He's the co-founder of The Motley Fool, which is a financial services firm in the United States that's been around since early 1990s. When 2008 rolled around, uh, instead, all of his workers were very nervous, right? The Great Recession was occurring and the financial services industry was hit particularly hard. Instead of sitting in the boardroom with his... Uh, his uh, uh, C-suite leadership team and saying, all right, who do we cut? How do we cut costs and make this happen? He went to his, he called an all hands on deck meeting, brought everybody into the conversation, every single employee and said, folks, we're not going to let anybody go, but we're going to figure this out together. So how do we solve this? Everyone, we need everyone to pitch in here. And you want to talk about enabling and empowering folks, especially in a time of crisis like 2008, I mean, if, if for anyone who was in the financial services industry or any industry, quite frankly, in 2008, I mean, there were periods where you thought, is my company going to be around tomorrow? Uh, it was, there were some scary times in there. And instead of, as I said, doing this sort of behind the, behind a closed door conversation, 
he completely went with the transparent mode and asked for feedback and advice. And what they ended up doing was just extraordinary. Instead of looking around and saying, let's cut this department or 15% across the board or whatever it might be to take the pain together, they decided to pause the retirement plan contribution that the company was making. And so it cut, it cut millions of dollars in costs. It was one of the biggest savings they found. But more importantly, it made everyone sort of take the pain together rather than single out a department. And what it really made people realize was, we're all in this together and we will continue to be for years to come. Fast forward, you know, they survived the 2008 Great Recession. They paid everybody back for the lost money into their retirement plan uh, when, they, when business recovered. And this is now an organization that went from basically starting in a basement to 1 million paid customers, about 700 employees and 95, 96% retention rate. So if you once people go to work there, they almost never leave. And it's because of these types of cultural things that they do that keep people around. It's just an extraordinary story. That's incredible. So you also talk about failure in the book, but I wanted to kind of take a step back from failure and since it's about innovation and success from innovation might not be instant. And I was wondering, how do you know as a leader when it's time to let innovation grow and even if it's not being successful immediately when you think it might be? Or when it is time to kind of cut whatever project it is that is maybe not living up to what you hoped it would be. One of the beauties of this strategy, there's there are twofold benefit here, which is one, as you get your team to think in this incremental optimizer mindset, the idea is you're getting them to allocate each week. We're not talking about 30 hours a week, Helen. We're talking about one or two hours a week where they think about what am I doing? How can I execute on this in a, in a more optimized fashion? and put it in writing. And as they develop these ideas, as you help them develop these ideas, because you very much have to work with them to do this. I never went to people and said, hey, fix this or fix that. I went to them and said, hey, what should we try to fix here? And what do you think would be uh, something you'd be passionate and and feel empowered to work on? Uh, And so as they worked on that from week to week, I would have, uh, I, I highly recommend having bi-weekly, at least bi-weekly calls with them to check in and say, hey, how's it going? What have you tried so far? How's it going? Why did you decide to go in that direction? Just giving you samples of open-ended questions, I'd ask them to try to get them to think more deeply about what they're doing. And as time went on, oftentimes it self-identifies itself, meaning they figure out, oh, wait, this isn't working or I can't get it right. Or they figure out a better way to do it. And one way you help them find a better way to do it is as they go through this progress and find work on this new idea, develop it further along, have them present it to their peers as they see progress with it. And their peers begin to offer feedback and advice on, oh, that's an interesting idea. Why don't you add this wrinkle to it, if you will? So what I found over time was uh, sometimes things don't work. And oftentimes it becomes very clear through this collaborative approach that they aren't working. But most of the time with incremental steps, you can always find a pivot to go in the right direction. So we had very few ideas that didn't go in the right direction. And usually uh, they became pretty evident. And mostly those tended to be associated with taking on budget dollars uh, where we actually had to pay hard dollars out of our pocket to make it happen. You know, we invested this money in this new idea and we didn't get a whole lot of return out of it. So it's a little clear when you have money, but these incremental steps, uh, as I said, and you get your team to work collaboratively together on them, 
they can oftentimes turn into wonderful things and have a very low failure rate. So believe it or not, that's, that's how I look at it. What about when failure unfortunately does happen as a leader, how do you kind of guide your employees through failure so that they can really learn from it? This starts early on in the process which is letting them know failure is going to be part of this journey. You're going to try things and they're not going to work. And again, uh, we talked before we came on the show about practical advice. This is such practical and basic advice, but it's so often underutilized. So you have to set the tone at the top. There's one unique thing leaders can do, and that is set that tone at the top of what, what are we here for? What do we stand for? And in my case, I always promote to folks, we are here to learn and we are here to grow together. And there are going to be bumps in the road along the way, but that's how we learn and get better. And we're going to do this together. So setting that mindset at the top is, is really important. And, and I have a story in that I'm happy to share from, believe it or not, a public school principal in Oregon, uh, Oregon uh, in the United States. So Katrina uh, is a principal that I interviewed. And it was fascinating to me because the book first set out, I was thinking this would be a financial services focused book. Uh, but as I started to realize, maybe there's some application here outside of the industry I've worked in all these years. So I started to interview people outside of the industry. And she was one of the folks I landed on because I, I, I just knew she was a great leader and <laughs> had talked to her a, a few times before. So her big idea, believe it or not, Ellen, was celebrating mistakes, celebrating failure. So she took very much this approach that I'm talking about. She encouraged her team to constantly try to innovate against their mission, which was building a great public school system in Oregon and bringing the community in and making them more involved in the school. So the way she physically got that done was each month at her team meeting, if she had a couple of people working on an idea and it didn't work, she'd have them share that. And the culture was everybody would applaud the fact that they made this mistake and learn from it. Literally 45 people, two people would stand up and tell their story and 45 people would give them an ovation to say, great job. And what happens then is 45 people know a way not to do something, which is awesome, right? Knowing, finding a way to do something is great. Also learning ways that don't work is also very powerful. The other thing is it reinforces this idea of, hey, keep trying, keep learning. And many times people could take those ideas and modify them, refine them and make them work. But that with, with new knowledge, with new insight. So celebrating mistakes is, is a powerful way to get that done. So I'm loving all these examples. And I was wondering if you had an example of an organization which has managed to kind of embody everything that you've talked about so far and really optimize their offering through this innovation. Sorry, I don't know if that's a oh, tough. hard task. Right. It, it, I'll tell you, one of my favorite examples uh, is Patty Brennan. She is a financial advisor that uh, I interviewed for the book. Just incredibly successful. She's been in business 30-something years. She started out as a nurse in the ICU and through a variety of uh, circumstances, uh, moved over to being a financial uh, advisor built this business over 30 years, literally from her basement. And what she has done is when she hires a new person, one of the first things she does is, and let me back up a half step to give her a bit more credibility. She is literally, Barron's Magazine is a top financial advisor, a top financial magazine in the US. 
she, they give out these awards for top financial advisors. I think she's won every single award that they offer over the last 10 years or 15 years. I mean, just incredible. Uh, and her company has grown like crazy. So what she does was someone comes in as a new employee, there's this nine dot puzzle where you try to connect all my dots with four lines without picking up your pencil. Have you seen this before? I think vaguely, yeah. The, the, the way, do you know how it gets done? No, I don't think so. But God, what a scary start to a new job. <laughs> right. So it's the way you get it done is you have to go outside of the nine dots to connect them as I'm describing. And she does that for people to right out of the gate, set the tone to say, hey, you're here. We hired you because you're great and you're smart, but we need you to think outside the box because we work in a complex business and have clients that have complex needs. And we can't approach it with a black and a black and white view every day. Sometimes we have to think creatively. So immediately with her new hires, she sets this tone that we need you to innovate and be creative. And then as each year goes by to reinforce this, there are many pieces to her puzzle, but one I really really appreciated was every single person on her team, 25, 26 people come together and have an equal voice in the business planning each and every year. And that is to say is unusual. I would say <laughs> is almost an understatement. Uh, that does not happen very often where everyone from, you know, the, the, uh, the person who works at the front desk to the senior team leaders, everyone has an equal voice. How do we run our business plan? How do we run more efficiently and effectively? And anyone can raise their hand and offer up an idea. And if it's a good idea, they'll run with it. That person will get full credit for it. They'll institute this new policy. And the way she really makes it work, Ellen, is every single person shares equally in the year-end bonus, which again, I mean, to say that's unheard of is also another one of these understatements. And so they have different bonuses, but particularly if they hit their goals for the year, every single person gets the same. I'm going to make up a number, $5,000 uh, <laughs> if they hit their goal. And so that's the way she ties it all together from end to end. She empowers people to innovate uh, with this nine dot puzzle. She really, excuse me, enables them through that nine dot puzzle and that thought provoking idea right at the start. She empowers them to do it through giving them ownership of the business planning process. And then she really makes the point by equalizing the compensation and making everyone realize, hey, we're all on this together. Uh, just a powerful, power, powerful example of helping people innovate and helping people see the benefit of it and doing it together. I could probably give you four more examples from her, but I'll, I'll pause there. <laughs> I love that so much. Um, She's really an extraordinary leader. So my final question is kind of to round up, but what would your top tips for leaders be to optimize innovation at their organizations? Something they could go away and talk about in the next meeting or, you know, really like implement straight away? That's a, that's a tricky one because it's, it's a, it's a process. There's, it's hard to say, oh, there's sort of one, one thing, but I, I do have one idea that it's very simple to do, particularly for leaders who feel stuck that say, gosh, I'm trying to drive change. I need to drive change. And it's, it's just not happening. So here's what I would encourage people to do. Go onto the internet. I'm not kidding you at all. Google my manager is, and just stop right there and see what comes up on the screen, right? Google will auto-populate, right? Seven, eight, nine different things and see what they say. 
And I'll tell you, Ellen, if you've never done that exercise, it's a pretty interesting one because what comes up is my manager is toxic. My manager is a micromanager. My manager hates me. My manager is trying to stop me. I mean, nothing positive comes up. So I would encourage people to go and start there and see what, what is the sort of, if, especially if you're feeling stalled and driving change and just get a sense of what the internet who cat, who gathers data from all over the world is saying and think about Think about that mindset if you're feeling stalled and use that as a starting point to begin to deepen or build better personal relationships with your team. Understand what motivates them, where they go on vacation, why do they have families, how well do you know them, and then moving towards that feedback and advice uh, two-way street model is just extraordinary. If you let people give you advice and you take it, as I shared in the earlier example, it Making advice and, and feedback in two-way street is just such a powerful way to build trust. But I think starting with that Google search is a pretty powerful way to help you understand how to approach those conversations and maybe give you a little bit more awareness of if you are feeling stuck on how people might view you. I love that. It's such a normal answer is Google it, but such a different <laughs> way. <laughs> It's, it's it's kind of my answer to everything, Ellen. What's this? I, I don't know. Google it. <laughs> um, well, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I've genuinely really enjoyed speaking to you and it's been great to hear all of your tips and tricks and examples. And yeah, we really encourage everyone to read the book. Ellen, thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure to talk with you this morning. like to say a massive thank you to John Saunders for being on the podcast again. I'd like to remind you of his book which is The Optimizer: Building and Leading a Team of Serial Innovators which will be available at any good bookstore. If you'd like more thought leadership head to www.associationofmbas.com forward slash ambition and make sure to listen out for the next ambition podcast.